Would you say a prayer with me before we look at the scriptures today? Jesus, we acknowledge your presence with us. Whenever we're gathered together, you promise to be here, and we, we know that you are here with us today. We know that you care about this school as, the, as school starts tomorrow. For the kids that are here, for the principal, for the teachers, we pray your peace will be over the school as the year gets started. God, we, we gather here together to hear what you have to say, and so we pray that you'd open our ears and open our eyes, open our hearts to receive whatever it is you might want to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're finishing up a conversation that we've been in most of the summer called, You Are What You Love. And it's been a bit of a challenge to think about the things that we love the most and how those things define us and how we can maybe reshape some of the things we love to direct what we love more towards the things that matter the most to God. And so it's been different than to say you are what you think or you are what you say or you are what you believe. Uh, we're talking about well, what, what you really are is what's in your heart, what's the most important to you, what you care about, what you think about, what you put your resources towards, what you love. And we want to finish that conversation today by talking about loving God as the most important thing that we can love. When Jesus says the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart, what does that mean and how do we practice that? That's kind of where we're going as we conclude this conversation. I was thinking this week about all the different stories, hundreds, maybe thousands of stories that all of us encounter every week that are saying something about what's most important in life. So just think about this for a minute with me. Almost every day, we're looking at different avenues that are telling us a story. Open your Facebook app right now. Grab your phone, open your Facebook app, start scrolling through the news feed. What are you going to see? Stories, right? People who have posted all kinds of different stuff that are important to them. And each one of those stories, even though nobody ever says it like this on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or whatever else there is. I'm old, so I can say that kind of thing. Ann was trying to get me signed up for Snapchat this week. I don't get it, so it disappears. Then how do I see it? I don't understand. Huh? Do it? All right, Kiefer, you and me. Snapchat me something. How, do you, how is it a verb? You snap it to me? You're going to snap it to me? Snap something to me today, okay? Okay. This is all planned. Can you tell? When you open up Facebook, there's a story and people are posting things. And there's social science research that suggests that all of us are uh, posting things about our lives that are infinitely better than our actual lives. Have you seen this? So the people who spend the most time on Facebook right now are the most depressed. That's social science conclusions. Because we're posting, the, a lot of us, the best things about our lives often. Like, oh my gosh, my kid can ride his bike. Look at this. And then I read it like, oh, not all my kids can ride their bike. I feel terrible about myself, right? There's a... There's a pattern on Facebook of the stories, and nobody says it like this, but every one of those stories is telling you something that you ought to think should be true about your life, or that maybe you should have accomplished, or that, that your relationship should look like that, or your job, or your family, or whatever, right? And we're just absorbing all these stories. We're not always reflecting on what they mean, or if they're true, or does it matter? Or another example is maybe you're going to work, and if you have a job, and you have a boss, your boss has a view of what the most important things in life are, right? 
And depending on your boss, your boss may not even care that much about what's happening all in your personal life or whether your kid can ride a bike or not. They just care whether or not you're going to get your job done that week. And the most important thing in life is whether or not you're being a responsible employee. And I know some of your stories and sometimes those stories make you miserable in your work lives and you're trying to struggle through that. Maybe some of you watched the Olympics. Chris and I were a little bit on the Olympic addict track for a while, so we're glad it ended so that the temptation drifted away. But you hear all these amazing, compelling stories in the Olympics, right? Of people who've come, overcome tons of obstacles and competed at a high level and all these amazing human interest stories. And every one of those stories, whether you know it or not, is trying to tell you something, teach you something about what's most important in life. And every week, this is going on every day, whether you realize it or not. Thousands of stories are coming at you every day, influencing you, seeking to capture your imagination about what the best life is like. And sometimes those stories are pointing us in really good ways. There are some beautiful stories about what people are doing with their lives that might help you become a better person if you read them and listen to them. And then there are some that are putting amazing pressure on you to invest yourself in things that totally don't matter at all. And I'm not sure that all of us know the difference or even know that that's happening every single day. So what I want to talk about here at the beginning of this conversation this morning is which stories are shaping you the most and what are those stories saying in relation to what God says is true about your life? There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 29 that I want to read you. This has to do with people who have listened to some stories and those stories have shaped them in ways that aren't good. And Isaiah, as he's talking to the people, uh, mostly of Jerusalem, about how their life has gone so far away from what God wanted them to, he, he articulates it like this in just a couple verses. Isaiah 29, 13. It's, it's, Isaiah writes down, The Lord says... These people, the people in Jerusalem, the Israelites, they come near me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. People, he's saying, are coming to worship God and they're saying things with their mouth that they maybe even think might be true. But the words are empty because it doesn't match what's going on in their heart. And somehow maybe they've convinced themselves that God can't tell the difference between what's coming out of their mouth and what's actually going on in their heart. But God can, right? So one of the major critiques of this group of people who are increasingly buying into the worship of other gods in their culture in order to increase their own financial security and their own self-interest is, listen, people are coming near to God and they're saying things with their lips, but the words are empty and their hearts are nowhere near me and their worship isn't even working. Their worship's kind of pointless because they've made up a whole bunch of rules about what worship should be like and they're going through them but it's not changing their hearts, so it doesn't matter. Let me read you the message version of the same text because I think it does uh, make some things even more clear. 
Here it is. I'm going to read it off the screen. The master said, these people make a big show out of saying the right thing, but their hearts aren't in it because they act like they're worshiping me, but they don't mean it. I'm going to step in and shock them awake, astonish them, stand them on their ears. The wise ones who had it all figured out will be exposed as fools. The smart people who thought they knew everything will turn out to know nothing. The master said, these people make a big show out of saying the right thing, but their hearts are not in it. Now, I think I've said to you many times if you've been hanging around Mill City Church, it's very easy to be judgmental towards people who screw stuff up in the Bible. As I try to reflect on my own life and go, has there ever been a time in my life where I felt like I was saying the right thing and I knew I was saying the right thing and I also knew my heart wasn't in it? Absolutely. More times than I want to admit. One of my styles in arguing with my wife is being able to win the argument even when I haven't really won the argument because I'm a good arguer. And I know sometimes, even as the words are coming out of my mouth, that my wife is right and I'm wrong and I'm not going to admit that. Anybody else? Nope. That's cool. It could be just me. It's just fine. I don't even, I don't use Snapchat. I know. It's all right. It's okay. So sometimes we're in the same place. Sometimes we even walk through this door and realize, man, I'm just not, my heart's just not there. I can say the things and the words come on the screen and I sing the songs and my heart's just not in it. And that's not a good place to be, but it's also not a place to be ashamed of. It's a place to do something about. So I started asking questions of this text. Why did they get to this place? Why did they get to the place where what they were saying and their hearts were so far apart? I, I think a lot of people in the 21st century have recognized the disconnect between what they're saying and what's going on in their heart, and they just stopped going to church. Anybody have a friend like that? They said, look, I realize I don't even believe half the stuff we're saying, so I'm just not going to go anymore. That seems more honest. And it is more honest, isn't it? But it doesn't address the problem at all. It assumes that, the, that that's just fine, that the disconnect is fine, and if we just stop going, somehow that fixes it. It doesn't fix it at all. Makes it worse, in fact. Because what the text is saying here is that it's, it's worship, it's real worship of God that actually brings you back to the place where your heart and your mouth match up. Their worship was ineffective, it was empty, because their hearts were not in it, and they made up a bunch of rules, which is easy to do in a worship service as somebody who oversees some of the rules for worshiping. So the question isn't, should we just quit and line up? We should instead say, how do we get our hearts back to the place where we love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? How do we practice loving God in a way that brings, that, brings, our, brings us back into the place we need to be? And what I want to say to you this morning is that worshiping God together is the way that God has designed for us to counter all the other stories you're hearing all week. Because we're living into a story right now. That's really what worship is. Worship is us reenacting the story of God in our life week after week after week after week because you can't be good at anything that you don't practice over and over and over and over again. 
And some weeks it's a little shaky and some weeks it's a little strong, but you keep doing it because otherwise the muscle goes away and your heart is for sure going to drift away from God. Because worship is one of the primary ways that we're rehearsing the story of God's love towards us together, not as individuals. This is uh, what James Smith, who I stole the title of this whole teaching series from his book, which is called You Are What You Love, which if you are looking for a book to read, is a terrific book to read. He says uh, this about Christian worship. Christian worship doesn't just teach us how to think. It teaches us how to love. And it does so by inviting us into the biblical story and implanting that story in our bones. It drives the story of God's grace and mercy and redemption into our bones so that when you go back out and Facebook is is hammering you away with a new set of stories, you have a story in your bones that's going to be the lens through which you hear every other story. You get to choose which stories influence your life. And there are a lot of people out there to capture your imagination and say, this is the narrative that you're living in. And so we have to be discerning and we have to be aware. And and in some ways, when God says, I'm going to wake them up, I'm going to shock them back into existence because some of us have fallen asleep and we don't even realize what's happening to us. If we don't rehearse the story and remember who God is, who God says we are and what life is about, we're going to lose track of that. We're going to lose track of our identity. We're going to lose get lost in the sea of competing stories that are bombarding us every, every day. And that's a dangerous place to be. So let me, let me move on and say, so when Jesus is asked the question, what's the most important thing in life? He's very, very clear about it. So I just want to state that. In, in Mark chapter 12, when uh, a teacher, a professor, a teacher of the law says to Jesus, what is of all the commandments, he says in Mark 12, verse 28, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus is quoting the same scripture that I read to you during the baby dedication today from Deuteronomy. His response to this question is, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second most important commandment is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. We should be thankful whenever Jesus gives a straightforward, unambiguous response to an answer to a question because it doesn't happen that much. What's the most important? Here they are, these two. Love God with everything you have, heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as if they were yourself. Clear, right? So the, the question is, if loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the most important. How are we practicing loving God together? Steph said this last week. It was really good. She said, look, you can't be good at loving unless you practice. Love takes practice. Loving anybody takes practice. So when we're saying, how does a group of people learn to love God together? How are we getting better as a church at loving God? Do we love God more today than we did a year ago? or eight school years ago when we started here in this school? How would we know that? Are we growing in our love for God? Maybe the greatest expression of love for God is giving God your wholehearted trust. 
and believing with everything you have that what God is telling you about who you are and what's most important in your life is true. When Jesus gives up his life on the cross and is resurrected, the thing he asks back from us is not uh, anything but wholehearted trust, right? I'm offering you a gift of salvation and forgiveness. I'm inviting you into a different kind of story. You have to trust the story, though. You have to receive that gift, and you have to trust the story, and it will automatically make you a different kind of person. In order to build up the trust that we have for God, the love we have for God, we have to rehearse God's story so that we know how to live into it every day. Because every day there's an opportunity to act in a way that's either in line with the story God's telling or in line with some other story. Every day. If you're a business owner, if you're a student, if you're a kid, if you're a mom, if, if you're a professional person, whatever you're doing, every single day there's an opportunity to live into God's story or be influenced by a different story every day, almost every moment of every day. Worshiping God is not primarily about checking a box out of duty, and it's not even about learning something new about God or interesting from whoever was speaking on that particular day. It's about being shaped. It's about reforming yourself. It's about hearing a story one more time and allowing the Holy Spirit to drive it deeper down into your understanding so that it's second nature, so that before you, think, before you know it, you're not even thinking about it anymore. You approach every situation in your life from the story of God's creation and the fall and the redemption in Jesus Christ and the restoration of the whole earth that's coming. Everything goes through that lens. And you have confidence about who you are, not because anybody tells you you're great, but because God created you in God's image. So many of the struggles we have today need to be informed by this story where God's trying to tell us who we are. N.T. Wright, when asked the question, what are we really in worship for? What are we here for? Or what are we here in the world at all? He says this, what we're here for is to become genuine human beings, reflecting the God in whose image we're made. I had several conversations with some of you this week that just said, worship has to be more than about learning. It has to be more than about just getting the latest little piece of self-help information from the Bible. And I totally agree, it has to be more than that. I love the description that what God's calling us to in worship is to become more ourselves, to become more human, to understand better why God created us the way God created us, in God's image. We already have a story that says we know that God created us in God's image. So why? And for what purpose? And the more we deepen our love for God in worship, the better we understand who we are and the easier it is to act out of that identity as opposed to some other identity that we have. But if we don't worship and if we don't enter into rehearsing that story over and over again, we're gonna lose track of that. Every time we come together in this space or any other space we decide to come together in, we're worshiping God and we're rehearsing the story. So I wanna just use my last few minutes to show you exactly how we're rehearsing the story right now and why it's so important for us to keep coming together as Christians to worship God together. Thinking of worship as one of the ways we're practicing our love for God. When we come to worship, 
and you're standing out in the hallway and you're grabbing coffee or you're coming in or you're having a chat with somebody, there's a call. There's an invitation from the worship leader. Someone is leading the congregation and they're saying, God is inviting you into this space. We are remembering that at the beginning of the world, in the beginning of creation, God calls us into existence. You're being called into this space. And not just as an individual, you're being called into a community of people who are going to be called by God's name. So, probably some more respect for Kiefer or whoever else is worship leading on that morning when they say, hey, please come in. It's not just because they desperately want you to hear their beautiful voice. It's because God is calling you into a holy space, into God's presence, to be part of worshiping and remembering the story that defines us. And whenever we gather together, we remember who we are. We remember who we are as children of God. We're reminded through the songs that we sing, through the teaching, through communion when we celebrate it, that we are God's children. We need that reminder every week or we lose track of it. We then enter in at some point in our, in our journey together, in our conversation, in our worship of God, we enter into recreating or remembering the fall. We acknowledge brokenness. We acknowledge sin. The world is a messed up place. Many of you had hard weeks this week. You noticed brokenness all around you in relationships. There's justice issues. There's problems in the world. There's turmoil. There's issues for yourself in your own, in your own journey. The world is a broken and messed up place. And every week we come together and we're not pretending it's not messed up. And we're not pretending that we don't have any fault. We're acknowledging it. We're remembering it every week. And the way we respond to the brokenness in the world as Christians is to admit that we're part of the problem and that we desperately need God's forgiveness. Here's, a, here's an ancient confession. I'm just going to read it to you today. A way that as a group of people, we sometimes come together and say, hey, we need your forgiveness. We recognize there's brokenness in the world. Listen to this. It's, it's a poem written to help us confess. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Christians ought to be the most humble people in the world. We're remembering every week that we're part of the brokenness. And we're looking at each other in the face and saying, I know you don't have it all together, and you know I don't have it all together. And we're remembering that as part of what's going on. And then we rehearse the restoration, the redemption, excuse me, that comes in Jesus Christ with texts like this in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So every single week we need this. We need to remember that it's, that it's messed up. Sometimes church people come across as folks for which nothing is messed up. That's weird. We ought to be able to come in and worship every week and say, I bet, I bet something's hard for that person. 
And this is the community where we every week say, yeah, it's hard, and I'm not doing great on this, and I need God's forgiveness desperately, and your forgiveness, and I, I want to I be different. That's the story. You hear alternative stories in the media now about how people don't ever want to admit they're wrong about anything. I saw a guy at the fair yesterday with a shirt on that said, hit first, hit hardest, no mercy. That's what the shirt said. He was getting on ye old mill. It wasn't that threatening. There are stories out there in the world that are antithetical to the good news of Jesus Christ, right? There are stories that people are trying to convince you are true about what success is and what love is and what hope is that have nothing to do with the story that Jesus is telling. And we have to come together and worship and practice our love for God so that story drives deeper and deeper and deeper. The story ends, as you know, we rehearse this all the time at Mill City, with restoration. Ultimately, God is going to restore all things. God is already restoring a lot of things. We have stories in the congregation of ways that you have been restored in your life and in your relationships. And so we want to send each other out at the end of every worship service. We send you out with a benediction, a blessing, and an encouragement. And we say, go out into the world and participate in God's mission. Worship is not the end. It is the place where we remember our story and are sent back into the world as witnesses and participants in the work of God to restore all things that will come finally when Jesus returns. Do you hear the story across all of worship? It's easy to lose track of. It's easy to think of worship as four songs and some announcements in a sermon. But it's really not that. It's us remembering our story, encouraging each other, admitting our brokenness, receiving forgiveness, sharing in communion, becoming friends with each other, and sending each other out into the world to be part of what God is doing. Let me invite the band to come up. I just want to close by saying this, because for years now, we're having this conversation, and it's an important conversation, where lots of us have asked, what's really the point of going to church? What's really the point of going to worship? And if any of you know people who work on a church staff, we all know now that regular attendance in worship is two out of four, two out of four Sundays. And sometimes one out of four Sundays. And we're all real hesitant sometimes to sort of guilt you because we love you and we don't want you to feel bad about not showing up. But I want to say something different to you today that has nothing to do with the staff or their expectations. I just want to say, I don't know of another concrete way to keep reshaping your story than to keep worshiping God. And I'm sure there are ways you can do that in smaller groups with your friends or even on your own if you're listening and praying and worshiping. But that's what this is designed for. And if we don't do it, it isn't like, oh, God's, you know, God's mad. It's like you can't become the person that God created you to be without worship in your life. You can't read the story of Scripture and say worship is optional. Or worship is private. There's no way. I mean, go ahead and try to make that argument. It's not there. Either we learn to come together and be reshaped and be reformed week after week and say, here's how some other stories are influencing me right now, and I, want, I need to wrestle through how God's story influences that. But if we don't do it, we, there's just no way we can grow in love of God, worshiping together once in a while. It's just not going to happen. 
You can't learn to do anything well in your life doing it once in a while, right? And it matters a ton, not just for you and your development, but for the person who sits next to you. They count on you coming here and worshiping with them. And we as a church, we want to keep learning how to restory this better. There's always ways we can do it better. How can we listen to the story and be reformed all the time? But we absolutely need each other to do it. We can't do it on our own. And so I want to encourage you, as Steph would say, shame is horrible. There's no shame in what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying, I think this is how God is inviting you to be shaped. This is one of the primary ways God is helping you learn how to love God. And if you don't do it consistently, you're not going to grow in your love for God. Make sense? I'm so grateful to be part of this church. Chris and I were gone for four Sundays in July. We've never been gone for four Sundays, as long as this thing has existed. And when I got back, the week I got back, I wasn't speaking. I was just sitting in the back. And I just sat there, and I thought, I love it here. I love being with you. I love being in this community. I love listening to what people have to say about God. I love remembering my story. I love being in this church, and that's not just me saying that because I work here. I missed it. And I wasn't being formed in the same way when I wasn't with you. And neither were my kids or my wife. And so we need to be here together, and I'm imploring you. As you think about this next year, as the fall starts, make worship a priority for you and for the person sitting next to you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are so gracious to us. No matter how far away we wander or stray, you are always coming back and searching us out and reminding us who we are. We give you praise and glory and honor today because you are the author of the story, the one true God. Lord, break through our lives. Break through, wake us up, help us to see which story matters the most and how we can step into it. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.